Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 12.44 a.m. Monday night slash Tuesday morning. Getting this to you a day late because I had a busy Sunday. Uh, Church was awesome. Really great crowd. Really great service. The band crushed it. Hannah was amazing. My welcome was really freaking good. It was one of my best ones. Just kidding. Um... And then afterwards, I worked a wedding. So came home and I was beat and I didn't want to do anything. So sorry, I'm doing it now. Uh, I want to say one thing before we jump in. Uh, I met somebody really cool on Sunday. Shout out to Chris, who apparently discovered us while uh, they were living in Montana. And so was kind of listening to the podcast from afar, moved to Michigan, and then just came down to visit and might be coming down slightly more often. That's really cool. Chris, you rock. Thanks for listening. I don't know if you're going to listen to this episode because you actually saw it in person, but whatever, I don't care. Shout out to you. Um, Awesome message today for you. It is the third part of our series on uh, Richard Rohr. We're talking about conversion today. And before Hannah jumps in, only announcement I have for you is we are starting groups again soon. They will start the week of February 22nd. So if you want to be a part of our small groups, go to diff.church and sign up today. Hannah, take it away. We're continuing our conversation with Richard Rohr, who if you don't know who that is, it's a very influential Catholic theologian, philosopher. So we've talked about his stuff for like two weeks now, and we still have today. And next week... And y'all have really liked this, um, like an offensive amount. Someone told me it was the best sermon I had ever preached. And I was like, dang, mostly it was Richard Rohr. <laughs> but actually, he's pretty great. So <laughs> he should be complimented as well. <laughs> Today, we're talking about conversion. So exciting. And if you grew up evangelical, you're probably like, oh, no. <laughs> but it's OK. I promise we'll be OK. First of all, what is it? Like, is it a one-time event? Is it when you, the preacher says, I see that hand, and then you, you know, pray the specific words, and then, bam! (laughs) Everything changes in your life for approximately 3.2 days. And then later, later, you get invited to a youth concert where they have an altar call. (laughs) Oh, this is just my story? I apologize. Uh, The idea of, I got saved at least 100 times as a teenager. But according to my mother, the only time that counted was when I was four, after I saw a production of Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, which why would you take a four-year-old to that? I have no idea. But apparently it deeply moved me. And I'm like, yeah, of course it did. I was like, I don't want to go to hell. (laughs) And then my behavior changed. And I'm not kidding. She said, you were a completely different kid for a whole week. (laughs) And I was like, wow, a whole week. So, you know, conversion, like, is a one-time event. It kind of puzzles me. Like, it doesn't match what I see in the world. So like on the one hand, yes, conversion is something that happens at a moment in time. Like you can put a timestamp on it. Sometimes it's dramatic. Like when your program changes, you're following one program and you decide to follow a different program. Usually that happens in a moment in time. Like when you get married, you have an anniversary, but that doesn't mean you stay married, right? <laughs> um, like Paul gets, in the New Testament, he has like, you know, fabulous conversion story where he gets blinded by light from heaven and thrown off of his horse. And we're like, wow, what a conversion experience. And then we pray for things like that. At least we did in my church as a proud Pentecostal. And I don't think we're actually ready to be thrown off our high horses like Paul was. So maybe we shouldn't be praying for that. 
But if you examine people's stories of great breakthrough, they're not usually referring to what they see as they are to how they see. Like once I was blind, but now I see, right? So I think conversion is two things. It's one initial moment followed by a lifetime of continual moments and true conversion in our heart, in our body, in our mind, in our soul. It doesn't really happen until this new hardwiring takes place. Like you can have an emotional experience. Good for you, right? Like that doesn't mean you're a nice person. It doesn't mean people want to hang out with you. It doesn't mean Jesus is like, cool, I really want you to be spreading my name around, <laughs> right? Like the hardwiring of being present in the moment, like we talked about last week, has to become a permanent trait of our lives rather than a one-time thing. And this actually takes all of our lives to do. Is It is the very goal of being a person of faith. And I think it actually explains the issue we have with so many people who are like religiously converted. Um, because a lot of people tend to have, like they seem to have some kind of real, genuine, spiritual breakthrough in a moment. And then they never get around to like the ethical and theological and the intellectual and the lifestyle implications that take years to do and recognize and integrate into your life. We just like, oh yeah, I was saved. Okay. Why are you still a bad person? And if y'all think I'm being like aggressive, again, I've been saved a hundred times. Did it change me? Only for a week, apparently. <laughs> okay, I'm not preaching at you. Conversion is learning how to see everything in a new way. Ourselves, the world, God, each other, everything. To see rightly is to be able to be fully present without bias, without fear, without judgment. And it is such hard work for our emotions and our egos that most of us would rather just go to a church service and be like, yes, we did the thing. We did the Jesus thing. But you know, like if we wanna try, we're like, maybe we'll just try to change the way we see. How do we do it? We just go to the spiritual optical outlet and be like, I'll try on different denominations until I find one that feels like me. <laughs> I'll just keep going to a different church until I find what, not a different church, like multiple different, <laughs> various churches until I find something that feels good and like makes me feel good, but like doesn't challenge me too much. No. <laughs> or maybe we can be like, well, if I just keep trying hard enough, then it will happen. No. This way of seeing is a gift. It's given. It's not taken. It's waited for, not demanded. It has much more to do with our long-term willingness to just keep trying than our sheer determination to get it right. And this way of living comes at a cost and generally demands we walk through some fires, which we would prefer not to do, Jesus is like, oh, you want to follow me? Well, that is going to suck for you. And we're like, what? That's not in there. Oh, yeah. Jesus said it actually much worse than that. He was like, then pick up the thing that will kill you and carry it along with you. Good news. This is such good news <laughs> for everyone. Would you like to join a faith? You're probably going to die. <laughs> That's what Jesus told his disciples. Spiritual things cannot be achieved by intellect and willpower. They just can't. We cannot get there by trying harder. And that's really hard to learn, because especially in our culture. We're like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you want the thing, then you just got to be better and work harder and do the, just do the thing. You can get the thing because, you know, no, you can't. 
You can't. And this is probably why Jesus called it a narrow path that few will walk on. Spirituality is not about belief. It's not about doctrine. It's about letting go. Hmm. There's no perfect formula for how to do that. So you can't be like, how will I know when I have let go an appropriate amount? And then Jesus will be happy with, no, you don't get to know. <laughs> uh, there are two paths that like just break down our all or nothing thinking, and it's love and suffering. Great love. Great suffering. These are the best of teachers. But I, I mean, I like love. That's a good one. This one, not so much, right? I would much rather read a book about suffering. I would rather get the learning in my head than be swallowed by a whale like Jonah and descend into the abyss. <laughs> uh, it feels like dying. We fight it tooth and nail. But if we can just be present, if we can let go, if we can trust, then eventually we will be spit out on dry land, actually transformed. And the paradox is that conversion, this wisdom and full presence that we're trying to get, has already been given to us as a gift. But we only know the gift after having been swallowed by the whale and spit out again. No one comes to God just by love or suffering, right? But only people who have loved or have suffered tend to know God more deeply. It would be like a single person giving you advice on how to live with another person for your whole life. I mean, yeah, you might have some good points, but you don't know what it's like, right? <laughs> You don't know what it's like when the toothpaste cap is like not on for the 70 billionth time and you're mad about it because you don't have that experience. We can never get to God by our like distraction and running around and being crazy and doing all the things, but our, our, attempts, are our attempts at trying are the very thing that start us on the path. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. Fully God fully human. This is something we mentally ascend to, but do not practice in hardly any form. Theism believes there's a God. Christianity believes God and humanity can exist in the same place. In my experience, most Christians are very good theists who have just happened to name their God Jesus. What do I mean? We think in binaries, right? So it's always one or the other. It's not both at the same time. So the result is, we think of ourselves as humans trying to be spiritual, right? That's why we go to church. That's why we have faith. We got to work on our spiritual journey or some such nonsense. The Christian revelation is precisely that you are already spiritual. It is your difficult and necessary task to learn how to be a human. Hmm. Jesus came to model the full integration for us, right? He told us, God looks like me. And we didn't believe him because he looked too human. Our spirits are not the issue, right? It is in our humanness that we are so broken, that we are so needy, that we are so self-hating, that we are so unloving to each other. We have spawned centuries of religious people trying to be spiritual, instead of trying to be human. Our track record on just basic humanness, pitiful. But that's like a weird and confusing teaching, right? How to be a human. Oh, yes. And we're in very good company because most of the people who hung out with Jesus were profoundly confused by everything he said. <laughs> and we're confused because we're trying to figure it out. 
instead of focusing on being present in the moment. We're confused because we're trying to eliminate the mysterious and the scary and the unfamiliar and the outside of our comfort zone idea that God is already here and there and everywhere and that the gift is already here and we just don't know what to do about it. We cannot access God or grace or mercy or love when we are stuck in our all or nothing thinking. Like, could you even respect a God you could figure out? Augustine said, if you understand it, it is not God. That's better than the quote I said from him last week. If you don't know what that quote was, I'm not going to repeat it because there are kids in here this time. <laughs> Just go listen to the podcast. If Jesus was concerned about clarity from his side and like clear understanding from our side, he did not do very well. He gets an F in communication. Like Protestants, I know we're like, we're, we're progressive Christians, so we don't like to think we're Protestants. We are though. Okay, we have not given up on reading the Bible. In fact, we insist on reading it and studying it and doing all the things about it and doing all of this stuff, right? Which is a good thing, but then of course, you know, we run the risk of being utterly certain that we have the one and only interpretation that could possibly be right. And then we will ignore or attack anything that disagrees with us. And we continue to do that, even though Jesus taught like seven times in the book of Matthew alone that the kingdom of God, ultimate reality is like something, a metaphor. Metaphors invite us into more experience, a journey. It's not an idea with definitions that can be checked true or false on an exam. Jesus mostly communicated through riddles and parables and deeply obscure stories, which is not cool. If I had turned in papers in college as open to misunderstanding, false interpretation, and heresy as Jesus, I would not have passed any of my theology classes. In fact, if Jesus was concerned about communication, he should have learned to speak Greek. <laughs> Instead of this like very imprecise and difficult Aramaic, which could mean a lot of things. And we're like, yes, we know what it means. Do we? Thousands of years later, after it's been translated from another language, this is, there's one teaching in Luke's gospel that's very pivotal. It goes right along with this. And Jesus is talking to disciples and he's talking to Pharisees at the same time. So insiders and outsiders, people who loved him, people who were like, nah. Okay, and they're like, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus says, the kingdom is not here, and it is not there, for it is in you. And then they're like, okay, <laughs> where will we look for the kingdom of God? And Jesus is like, it is not here, and it is not there, for it is in you. And they were like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> what does that mean? I just imagine Jesus making some kind of like vague Board gestures. It's not here. Just it's, it's all, you already have it. And they're like, well, have what? Well, the kingdom. What does that even mean? And Jesus is like, well, it's you though. F. Jesus gets an F in theology. <laughs> Why? When we try to pin God down to one place and one church service and one sacrament and one event and one festival, we lose sight of the fact that God is everywhere at all times. Poor spiritual teaching is always saying, only here, only in my church, or my denomination, or whatever. Good spiritual teaching says always and everywhere. God is now and always, here and there, beyond any attempt to be controlled or bought or sold, 
in any specific church or temple. It cannot be controlled. John 3, 8 says the spirit blows where it wants. You can hear it and see it by its effects, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Jesus is saying God is everywhere. If God's everywhere, then God's not anywhere. <sighs> Again, what? <laughs> also, as a church employee, I tend not to like that. Uh, church employees have a little bit of a vested interest in keeping people in like dualistic binary thinking and therefore always at least a little bit insecure about grace and mercy, right? Because we, you know, you have to come back because if you don't come back, then like God is here. And if you don't get the God that is here, then you know, it's not the right one. Groups hold together much better when there's like clear and defined rules and us versus them. Obviously we're the superior ones. We're never like, there's an us and a them, and we're bad. <laughs> no, 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 we don't do that. Um, conservative evangelicals, which I know many of us come from those places, right? We do a very good job at this. We're like, okay, guilt-based religion, strong boundaries. If that's the thing, we're going to build 17 boundaries in front of it to make sure we don't ever touch the thing. Like, if we don't want you to, like, have relations with someone before you're married, then, then you don't even look at them. <laughs> don't you even walk on the same sidewalk. You think I'm joking, but <laughs> there's a college <laughs> in Florida, mind you, that for quite some time would not let girls and boys walk on the same sidewalk because, you know, obviously that's how babies are made. <laughs> and I don't think they do that anymore because common sense, but uh, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Shame works really well to keep the troops in line, but eventually we discover that it is completely unworkable. And for some reason, we're like, yeah, that's unworkable over there. But in our own hearts, we really don't want God to be everywhere. Just here. This God. This version feels good. My little believies. Right? But that makes us lose God for even ourselves. Our version of God, and by our I mean evangelical Christianity, has always seemed to have a very hard time showing love or mercy to sinners, despite the fact that, according to Jesus, it is in God's very job description. Read Romans 3 if you don't believe me. But, like, doesn't Jesus know that nothing lasts without organization and institution? Doesn't Jesus know that we need order and we need laws and we need rules for society to hold together? Yes, of course. But Jesus also knows that the only measure and criteria for spiritual things is God's infinite compassion and never our ability to understand it or perfectly respond to it. God does not love us because we are good, even though we are at our core. God loves us because God is good. If you're a parent and you have a child, you don't love that child because the child is good. They're terrible. You love them because you love them. And we have such a hard time accepting this from God. God's like, I am good and I am love and I love you. And we're like, well, maybe me, but not other people. Because they look different than me for one zillion reasons. And if you love them, then how could you possibly love me too? We're not the same. That's our main problem. We just take our either or mentality and we pose it on Jesus or we pose it on God and we make Jesus teaching on grace and mercy, an impossible concept to process. 
And then we apply that thinking to ourselves, which makes those teachings impossible to obey on any honest level. Therefore, we're forced to pretend and repress and deny and become a hypocrite because nothing in that system that is human is or ever will be perfect enough or worthy enough or good enough. It's not like that hypocrites seek out religious groups. It's the very structure of a lot of religion encourages people to act and pretend. It's all or nothing thinking. It's gotta be, it's gotta be one or the other, it can't be both. There's two major forms of this. I think we've all run into them. Um, first, individual Christians are told to love unconditionally. Right, you've all heard this? You must love each other. But the God who commands this is depicted as having a very conditional and quite exclusive love. Like believers, you just love your enemies, but God clearly does not. In fact, God punishes them for all eternity, which I think it stifles Christians. Like it paralyzes, we don't even think about it usually, but it paralyzes us at a very unconscious level because that message will not save the world and it certainly will not produce very many nice people. And second, under this message that most of us have heard, we end up being more loving than God and then therefore not being able to take God very seriously. Like even my atheist friends, ordinary people, right? They usually give people a break. They'll usually overlook some mistakes. They're not on their worst day going to wish torture for all eternity on someone who does something wrong, right? Especially if the only thing that person did wrong was not like them or worship them or believe in them. Like that makes God look really petty and needy and narcissistic and offended. Why would you trust or love such a God or even want to be alone with them? Or worse, spend eternity with them. I wouldn't. I think we need to be really honest about the ways that what we call good news has been bad news for so many people, including us. Because we see the Bible, we see God through our eyes, through our level of blindness. Punitive people love punitive biblical texts, right? Loving people hear in the same words a call to discernment and wisdom and clarity. And in the words of Luke, between the two, there is a great gulf. And you can't get from one side to the other. Y'all can come back up here. Religious people have an exaggerated... um, view of the objectivity of truth, like especially our capacity to understand it, right? How many of you have heard been like, well, you know, Jesus is the way. Okay, what does that mean? Well, here's a 17-page manual on what to do. I find it actually hilarious that for a faith that like speaks of going on a journey with Jesus, right? This whole thing is built on a whole lifelong process We claim to have total and absolute truth from the beginning. Whereas like scientists, which according to Christians are all atheists, 
Um, they're willing to work for years, years on a hypothesis, just what we know now. Decades. They're willing to work for hundreds of years, some of them. Right? We're convinced that we see things as they really are. But we don't see things as they really are. We see things how we are. What's the point? What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Conversion is the experience by which we become an authentic human being. It is ongoing. It started in a moment and then continued forever. It's the process by which we stop seeing things as we are and we start seeing things the way God is, which is infinite. It should affect every part of our life, right? It should affect our intellect. Intellect. We should move out of our world of just like, yeah, this is what we see, so this is all there is. And move into a universe of being. It should affect, we should be like morally converted. And despite the word moral, I don't mean like quit drinking and having thoughts about sex. You laugh. Oh, it's much harder. <laughs> it's much harder what God is asking when we say we want to be morally converted. I would much rather just try to stop thinking thoughts that maybe aren't helpful. Moral conversion is the purification of our real motives for doing things, even the good ones. From our desire for personal satisfaction and our need for control and our desperate need to feed our ego and our desperate need for safety, why do we do the things that we do? When we can seek like true good, common good, when we can love people even when it's of no benefit to us. That's moral conversion. And then there's religious conversion, which is like, we finally get to the point where we can live as beings, beings in love. It's not even, this is a weird I don't know, maybe I'll just take a page out of Jesus' book. Just be confused. <laughs> a being in love, like what does that even mean? It, to exist knowing that you are held and consumed by an otherworldly love that affects every part of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and that love is the only baseline, not everything else. That is not the same as joining a church or saying some words one time, or having a strong opinion about hot button issues. It's not the same thing. Mature religion involves changing ourselves and letting ourselves be changed by a mysterious encounter that we can't describe, but then if it happened, you know it's true. That is the truth that will set us free. We ask so many questions. Who's in? Who's out? How do we know? How do we get to heaven? What is, what is hell? What, does this even matter? What does all this mean? And Jesus asks all these same questions and then comes from the opposite side and arrives at a much better conclusion. Because we're like, here's the thing. Here's the list. Here's the procedure. Here's the words. Here's the rules. Here's how you know. And Jesus says, this is all Jesus says, if you who are 
sometimes evil. Know how to give your children what is good. How much more does God? And we're like, how do we know? Because God is good. Well, it's not good enough. Well, but God is good enough. God is the standard for good, right? Jesus takes God out of the straitjacket that we like attempt to squeeze God into. And then God's unconditional love becomes the only measuring stick. Which means that conversion, Christian spirituality, is literally just the imitation of God love one another and ourselves exactly the way that God loves us. Which is like, how deep and how wide and how high is your love? I can never see the end. It's the hardest, the most impossible, and the most wonderful and the most healing thing we could ever try to do.